Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I was able to sit in on their last session that first semester that they taught the course. I heard how it was impacting students' lives. And I just thought, shoot, I got to figure out how to, this, this needs to become my job. And I made sure that my job, once we got that grant, was was to direct the Life Worth Living program, which is now what I do. Because it just felt like, man, this is what education should be. You know, this is what it should be for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's great to have those 2 a.m. conversations back in the dorm room or whatever, you know, wherever you are having those conversations with your friends. But man, why not? Why not use the curriculum for that? And that's been our pitch to students. You know, if, if, if the Russian novel and organic chemistry or what have you are worth the best of your intellectual energies, then surely like the purpose and shape of your entire life are, are worthy of that same energy, you know? Yeah. And it's just been a, it's, yeah, it's just been an incredible joy to sort of offer students that opportunity to marry the best of their intellectual energies with their most profound existential questions. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Matthew, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you by way of uh, my publicist. And uh, I think we're both in one of the same groups of Penguin. But uh, when I, I saw the subject matter of the book, I thought to myself, this is you know a very deep idea. And as I just was joking with you before, this is one of those books that gave me a headache in the best way possible, because it was so uh, deep in terms of, you know, forcing you to think, I, I feel like I walked away with it with more questions than answers. But um, before we get into the content of the book, I wanted to start by asking you, what uh, religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did that end up impacting what you ended up doing with your life and career? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I was, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, we were, my, my sister had a little sister growing up who, when she was at that age of um, learning to memorize her home phone number, and her address and these sorts of things, we were rehearsing with her publicly, you know, hey, look, you know, look, the little kid knows her phone number, and she would recite it. And then we'd ask her, and where do you live? You know, and she said, Northbrook Evangelical Covenant Church, um, which was hilarious. That's not where we lived, of course. Um, but it felt at times growing up <laughs> that that's where we lived. Um, and so yeah, church was a big, big part of my life. 
um, my faith became more meaningful to me personally um, in college. You know, there's uh, for folks that grow up in a religious household, um, many uh, have a moment in college. If you go to college where it's, you know, it's the first uh, first Sunday or first Saturday morning or whenever you would or first Friday afternoon, whenever you would normally go to your religious service, when you think to yourself, oh, wait. No one is is uh, pushing me out the door to go do this. Um, I'm going to decide on my own. Um, and and usually um, it occurs to you in that moment, like it occurred to me. I remember thinking when I came to college, wait, I don't have to take English you know, this semester. No one is looking over my shoulder, making sure that I you know eat my vegetables uh, intellectually. And I had a similar experience going to college. And um, to that moment, I wait, I don't have to go to church. Um, and yet I found, um, I found a faith community on campus that was really, really important to not just my faith life, to my life, um, mm. large because, largely because it was a group of people who, you know, when I, when I went to college, I went to study music. Um, I was going to be like the conductor of like a, you know, a, a big symphony orchestra and like, a, and a composer in residence. You know, I was on like the Aaron Copeland or Leonard Bernstein sort of, um, track. There are no tracks for these things, you know, but that's how mm -hmm. I imagined myself. Yeah. And, um, and I had, I had lived my life to that point, trying to like sort of populate my life with fans rather than friends. I mean, honestly, I th I'm not sure that like 15 year old me knew the difference. Um, and when I found that faith community in college, it was a bunch of people who cared more about me than they were impressed by me. I mean, it's not too hard at Yale to find a bunch of people who aren't that impressed by you because um, <laughs> they're all pretty impressive people yeah, themselves. I can relate. I was a Berkeley undergrad, so I know. Okay. All right. <laughs> you, you, you get the, you get the vibe. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was huge, right? To have this group of people who really cared for me, who wanted, um, who, who sort of, I mean, at that point in my life, my, my faith was, I just sort of thought like, well, look, everybody has the same goals in life. We all just want to like make as much money as we possibly can. We want to get as much power and influence as we possibly can. But like a religious person, like that's, they, they are, they all have this, we all have the same goals. But if you're going to be a religious person, you have to do those same things with like one arm tied behind your back because you have to be like a good moral person while you mm -hmm. chase down all those goals. This faith community found in college was, had a different sort of thought. It was like, what if, what if faith actually meant reconsidering what the goals, what the meaningful and most important goals of life actually are? Um, and so rather than God being sort of like, I don't know, like the policeman of my means, you know, <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. slapping me on the hand when I try to, to cheat or steal my way to power, money, success. <laughs> Um, what if God actually wanted to have a say about what actually counted as success for me to begin with? Maybe it wasn't about influence and money. Maybe it was about uh, relationships and belonging and sort of giving one's life for the sake of the other. Um, and that just really, man, that like, that really captured my imagination. And I think, um, I mean, really, there's no way to tell the story of my life, um, since that time without uh, without that thread right at the center of it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the reason I started with that question is faith is one of those things that I find so fascinating, having grown up in an Indian household where, you know, going to the temple was just this nuisance that, you know, we would tolerate where it's like, okay. And, and it, I always say, you know, like, you know, the problem with being Indian, I told my mom, was like, the reason I'm not religious is all Indian religious traditions are time consuming. Like go to an Indian wedding. <laughs> they just take too long. Um, and bet. I'm not a patient person. Uh, but like, I wonder one, I think the way the media portrays evangelicals and kind of what we've seen is that they're sort of fanatical, you know, like sort of crazy about religion, trying to convert everybody. Obviously, I know that's not true considering you and I are talking here. Um, so I had two questions about that. Like one, what is, what do you think the uh, misperceptions that media creates uh, about people like you and the, the ones you grew up with? And then two, I feel like you have these sort of opposite extremes where people grow up in these religious households and they, you know, just rebel completely. Uh, against the whole idea of, of being religious and abandon it. And, and, you know, they see this as sort of a freedom to go ballistic. Um, and then you have the opposite, uh, people like you who have faith, faith becomes an integral part of their life. So what do you think distinguishes those two people? Yeah, well, you've asked a lot right there. Um, these are good questions. I, 
you know, I think, um, I think probably the more we live as hopefully just as like as honest, open human beings in the world, we more, the more I hope we come to realize that nobody like matches our stereotype of them. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's clearly true as we interact along across, you know, racial lines, across ethnic or cultural lines. I think, it, I, I think it's true in terms of, uh, religious lines as well. Yeah. I always, I always hesitate these days, you know, to drop the E word evangelical. Um, cause that just, yeah, in, in many circles that just means something politically that those aren't my politics mm-hmm. or in terms of a social agenda, that's not, you know, that's not my social agenda either. Um, at the same time, you know, and, and again, I, I appreciate you drawing the analogies because there are these ways that, you know, well, if nobody that we meet is exactly their stereotype, um, neither are we exactly our stereotype. Um, and so I guess for me, what that's meant is, yeah, there are things about my evangelical heritage, evangelical heritage that I would want to push back on or resist. But there are also pieces where I just have to be honest, like this is where I came from. Um, these communities were important to like who I've become. Um, I mean, I even end up like as an intellectual in these like weird places where, you know, I mean, there's, you talk about sort of fanaticism. I mean, one of the, one of the things that evangelicals are famously fanatical about is the Bible. Um, I'm actually, my PhD is in biblical studies. Um, thought a lot about the Bible. Basically, there's like a certain kind of posture of evangelicalism that's sometimes described as biblicism. And I mean, not to get too into the weeds about it, but like my biggest problem with biblicism, I think, is that it's unbiblical. Like, I, like when I read <laughs> like how the authors, um, how the writers in the Bible think about the Bible, um, they don't think about it in, in terms that... Um, you know, sort of evangelical biblicism would think about, I mean, Jesus himself sort of like, he he says like, Hey, you you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but they actually testify. He says about me, um, namely the implication being life is found, um, in, uh, in, in, in relationship with, with Jesus, who for Christians is a, that's a mediated, that's a relationship with God. Um, but anyway, I'll say like, the scripture, he's also saying that right there, you search the scriptures because you think that life is there. That's not where life is. Um, anyway, that strikes me as a rather un, that's not, that's not biblicism, uh, but that is how the Bible thinks about biblicism. But what a weird thing to say, like, I resist biblicism because it's unbiblical. I've now bored you with that word like eight times in a row, all to say, <laughs> I find that even in my resisting, even where I resist my tradition, I find myself still formed by my tradition. Um, and I think that's, I think, you know, you asked by like different paths. I, I, at least for me, those are like the really interesting places that I have found myself occupying. And I found, you know, friends and colleagues who are in other religious traditions who are, or, or who are in, you know, sort of, um, aren't, are, don't identify with any, any particular religious tradition. Um, a lot of us can sort of charts or parallel paths there, right? Where there's like, there's something from our background that we want to say, yeah, that's not, that's not me anymore. Um, but yet there is something about mm-hmm. that background that's still, yeah, that, that's exactly who I am. And you couldn't possibly understand me any other way. Um, and I can't really understand myself without some kind of reference to that. So, um, you know, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, uh, 
historian of Christianity. Actually, I think he was at Yale way back in the day. He said, he distinguished between tradition and traditionalism. He said, he said, uh, uh, tradition is uh, the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And, you know, I've, I've, uh, PJ Ivanhoe is a scholar of Confucianism, invokes this similar idea. And he talks about these different things of like traditionalism versus what he calls living through tradition, which is what he thinks Confucius is advocating for. And, and I think both of these thinkers are trying to point us to, um, to ways of relating to tradition. Uh, yeah, not as like dusty old ideas from a bygone era, but as, and not as things that are sort of spoken once and forever remain the same, but as living conversations. Sometimes even, I'll tell you, like as a theologian, sometimes theology feels more like an ongoing argument than it feels like, you know, a sort of repetition of the same old thing. Um, and I think if we're able to relate to traditions, be they religious or cultural or philosophical, if we can relate to traditions as living conversations rather than dusty relics, I think we can actually find that they're tremendous for uh, continuing to shape our lives. Even they, they, even at their best, I think, provide us the tools to critique them. Right? Uh, they actually help. They actually give us the tools we need. Right? Uh, with our students, each each spring, we invite them to read the Declaration of Independence alongside uh, the Declaration of Sentiments at Seneca Fall, authored by, among others, Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, and Frederick Douglass's "What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July." Right? Here's Here's that a sort of original in the American tradition, sort of original document, and and two authors who are taking up those lang that language. They each take up this phrase. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal, right? And Elizabeth Cady Stanton says, "If you mean all men are created equal, you must mean all men and women are created equal." The principle itself helps us restate the principle better, right? And Frederick Douglass says the same. When you said all men were created equal, apparently you didn't mean all men, but you should have men, meant all men because you said all men. And I'll help you say that thing better, right? On what grounds are these folks critiquing that original statement? Mm -hmm. In part, it's on the grounds of that statement itself. And at their best, that's what our traditions can do for us. They actually, not only do they like materials to work with, they even offer us, I think, sort of ideals with which we can critique the traditions that we've been living in and through and find our ways forward in our lives. So one thing I wonder is uh, when you grew up in an environment like the one you did, is a very strict, like sort of no drinking, no partying, or is that just sort of the stereotype? I mean, in my scene, my parents happened not to drink, but there wasn't like a big, there wasn't like a big, uh, I mean, we, it was like a Swedish context. So the Swedes, like, at least in my neck of the woods, like the Swedes were pretty chill. Um, they, mm -hmm. they were big on sort of, um, it really mattered to them that like communities remained sort of in unity. And so they really wanted to like allow room for disagreement in these sorts of things. And so I think like maybe like among different evangelical spaces, it was a pretty tolerant, pretty open one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I didn't, I don't think I had that sort of feeling of like, oh, this was like this repressed childhood environment that like I have to go like go crazy. So my wild oats or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, how in the world do you go from getting a PhD in biblical studies to teaching this class, uh, you know, which, like I said, is a subject that is so vast. I was like, you got this into one class. How? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, I mean, it, there's a sort of direct um, process. I, I was teaching um, Introduction to the New Testament in Yale College while I was a graduate student. And um, that course, when I first when I first taught it, it had a sort of shape that I had received from predecessors. And um, that course was basically just like a course on like ancient history. Um, it was thinking about New Testament documents just as like sort of artifacts of their ancient context, which is a totally, you know, reasonable way to read these texts. Um, but it wasn't the one that my students came in really caring about. Right? So at the beginning of the semester, like any good seminar leader, I'd ask them, you know, why are you taking class? And one after another, they, you know, they'd begin, students would begin by like identifying from religious location. You know, they'd say like, well, I'm, I'm not religious myself, but you know, I've got a roommate who's Christian. And I thought like, oh, I should read, I should read these texts that seem to be so important to them. I just really want to understand like what they, um, yeah, what, what my roommate finds so meaningful in their lives or, you know, anyway, you could write, write different answers like this, or, you know, one student like, I'm a Christian and I really want to like carefully like study my own religious text. Um, and I'd always have to sort of apologize to them at the end. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. At the end of the day, it probably isn't the course you're looking for. <laughs> you know, we're going to, this course is basically going to be like a little parochial um, course on, you know, the ancient Roman world in this little East, you know, bizarre Eastern corner of the empire. Um, but uh, when I sort of was able to reshape the course myself, I tried to sort of find room where somehow we would still do that historical study of the biblical text, but we'd also find time towards, you know, throughout the course and especially towards the end of the class where students would be able to take up like big life questions that they had and be able to bring those questions to this text. And whether they, you know, whether they had any particular religious attachment to the text or not, they were able to, to, to wrestle with these questions that were really important to them in dialogue with this ancient text. I, anyway, I, f I, I felt like it took a ton of work to rework this class and um, it really pushed against some of the um, sort of prevailing winds uh, in the department. But I felt so good about the outcome. And then <laughs> I heard that uh, two, two folks who are now my colleagues, uh, Ryan McAnally-Lins and Miroslav Wolf, my two co-authors in this book, they were teaching this class called Life Worth Living, where it felt like everything I had worked so hard to find room for around the edges of my, of my class, they just made that the whole class. <laughs> they just said, the only thing we're doing, we're just going to read, um, you know, religious and philosophical and cultural texts with these big, big questions of life in tow. And that's just, that's just the whole thing. And I thought, I mean, at first I thought, man, that sounds like cheating. <laughs> but then when I realized, like, um, actually they, I was able to sit in on their last session, that first semester that they taught the course. I heard how it was impacting students' lives. And I just thought, shoot, I got to figure out how to, this, this needs to become my job. Um, and really, like, we were in the middle of writing a, uh, I was like hired grant that if we got the grant, I would have a job. And I made sure that my job, once we got that grant, was, was to direct the Life Worth Living program, which is now what I do. Um, because it just felt like, man, this is what education this is what education should be. You know, this is what it should be for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's great to have those 2 a.m. conversations back in the dorm room or whatever, you know, wherever you are having those conversations with your friends. But 
man, why not, why not use the curriculum for that? Right. Why can't we um, make space? And that's been our pitch to students. You know, if, if, if the Russian novel and organic chemistry or what have you are worth the best of your intellectual energies, then surely like the purpose and shape of your entire life are, are worthy of that same energy, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just been a, it's, yeah, it's just been an incredible joy to sort of offer students that opportunity to marry the best of their intellectual energies with their most profound existential questions. I think that makes a perfect segue into talking about the book, um, specifically when you're talking about an elite institution like a place like Yale, because like I was thinking to myself, you know, like if you had asked me the question of what makes life worth living when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, it would be Ferraris and mansions and, you know, pretty much all the things a materialistic 20 year old wants. And I would probably think you were full of it. Um, if you start to pose these sort of deep questions, like this all sounds like a bunch of new age nonsense. Uh, so two questions, like one, you'd mentioned like making this part of the curriculum. And I wonder, like, why is that not more prevalent when, you know, you're in an undergraduate environment? But two, how does the environment, particularly when you're talking about Yale students, because Yale students are not exactly underachievers or been, you know, they've <laughs> got like a profound social influence around them of, you know, like sort of elite achievers on every field. It's like, you know, doctors, lawyers, bankers. I know this because my sister was a, a, you know, anesthesiology resident at Yale. Mm. Um, and same thing coming out of Berkeley undergrad, like half my friends are, you know, Harvard meds, you know, Harvard law school, business school at some top school. And it was kind of like, this is the path. This is what it means to live a good life. Yeah. Um, and, and I wonder how that narrative, uh, informs people at Yale, uh, when we're talking about this whole idea. Well, I mean, to take first question first, I mean, it, it is a, there much ink has been spilled about this actually, um, including a, a book by Anthony Cronman, um, education's end. He called it, uh, the subtitle is why our colleges and universities have given up on the meaning of life. <laughs> um, oh, it sounds like something I need to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll warn you. I, I think he, I think, I think in some places, for example, when he starts blaming the quote unquote multiculturalists. Um, but, um, but, okay. but what he gets right, I think, is when he, um, he names, you know, at least, Basically, there's what's called the modern research ideal within the university where we've, um, I mean, there's the old joke about getting your PhD, right? This is like getting a PhD is about, you know, you, you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about absolutely nothing. And there's something true in that joke, <laughs> right? About like what specialized knowledge that's celebrated within the university looks like. I mean, another old joke about this is uh, some president of the University of California, the UC system at some point said, a university is a bunch of like unrelated disjointed departments um, united over a common concern about shared parking, right? Like there's nothing that holds the university together other than, you know, complaints that there's not enough places to park your car. Um, and, and that is, th th those, those are, true caricatures in certain ways, right, of, of the academy. Uh, the knowledge that's celebrated is highly, highly specialized. And, it's, and, and the university on its own terms often has no way of relating any of those knowledges to any other knowledge. And the question of the meaning of life or, or any of these sort of big questions about the shape of flourishing life or about the good life, these questions uh, aren't answerable by knowledge. Um, they require something more like wisdom, which is just really not something the university is tuned to produce or to celebrate or to offer students access to. And the, the other thing that that's happened, and we, we found a little, we found a little bit of 
at our institution, you know, never stated, you know, explicitly, but sort of said, um, you know, maybe he's like between the margins here and there, between the lines. Is this sort of thought that like, well, I mean, you could have a community that where you took up these sort of questions about what's right and what's wrong, what's a good life, what's a life to be um, sort of regretted. You could take up those questions, maybe like in a pretty homogeneous community um, where you shared enough, um, you know, some sort of foundational commitments. So you had some standards of what those various things might mean. But in a diverse community, in a inclusive community, like the ones that most of our universities are trying to cultivate, um, you're just going to have to, you're just going to have to privatize those questions of the good. Um, and that's not just our university for what's worth. I think by and large, our whole society has made a decision to privatize the question of the good life. And so each one of us has to answer it for ourselves. For what's worth, I think that's right. I'd much rather have that than some institution trying to tell us what um, what a good life is. But um, privatizing mm-hmm. it does sometimes leave us entirely on our own. And so we really think that that those two options, that's a false choice. Like, actually, you can have an inclusive, diverse community that also takes up the question of the good life. And I think hopefully what we're trying to, hopefully what we've demonstrated in our, our course and with this book is that actually those kinds of diverse, pluralistic inclusive communities, those can be incredibly rich spaces to ask these questions. Um, and once you sort of see it, see it that way, you, you, you start to, um, you actually find that like communities that are convened around shared questions rather than around shared answers can be incredibly life-changing and transformative. When it comes to Yale students, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like these are students who come in, you know, they've been told all along the way, you know, what a good life is. Um, it, it looks like, I mean, Bart, it looks like the kind of life that I came to college thinking was a good life, right? Like power, influence, prestige, money, um, all that, um, a good, respectable career. Um, and I mean, in part, I mean, a lot of them, I mean, haven't even gotten much, gotten that far for a lot of them, like the good life has just been reduced to like getting into an elite college. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. that's what a good life was for the first 17, 18 years of their lives. And when they get there, I mean, our colleague, um, Lori Santos, who's, who teaches a sort of, um, a parallel course to ours, um, psychology and the good life at Yale, the so-called happiness class at Yale. And she, she, she remarks on this as well as students get to Yale and they look around and they think, is this it? You know, they were sort of, pro- they thought, they just thought Yale admission was the good life. Um, <laughs> yep. and suddenly they get to Yale and they look around and like, here's a whole bunch of people who got into Yale. Um, and not everyone seems to be all that happy. Um, or at, at the very least, it'd be really sad if like your whole, like the whole purpose of life was achieved by the time you were 18 years old. Like, what do you do next? Like what's valuable next? Um, so in certain ways, like they are, they're actually super like tuned into these questions right from the beginning. And because they, you know, itself sort of like, triggers something like a quarter life crisis. Um, but the, mm-hmm. the, but the fact, and, and, and the, that that's made only more intense by the fact that I think a lot of these elite institutions, um, it's very hard to live a balanced life as a, like a high schooler that also yields a, a so-called well-rounded, um, like resume for college admissions. So it's really hard to get mm-hmm. into one of these schools without having sort of sacrificed 
um, like health and well-being in your yeah. life on probably <laughs> usually on more than one front. Um, and so <clears throat> students also sort of come in just sort of like, you know, yeah, it's like they've, they've, they've run, they've run a marathon. They're absolutely exhausted. They've barely gotten over the finish line of elite college admissions. And they're, and they're, and, and so they're, they're both exhausted and wondering like what the run was all for. And so in certain ways, like that's, mm-hmm. they're like clamoring for exactly these sorts of opportunities to ask these questions. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I, I wanted to bring back a clip from a conversation I had with David Epstein, which I think will make an interesting jump off point into talking about some of the questions that you asked, particularly when you're talking about these questions at such an early age. Take a listen. We will underestimate future change at every time point, even when we're very old. But at, at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late 20s. That's when you undergo mm-hmm. the fastest time of personality yeah. change. And so essentially right at the start of that period, we're telling someone pick now, which, which is really asking them 
to pick for a person they don't yet know, mm-hmm. and, and certainly in a world they can't yet conceive, unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. And so I think it's a particularly bad time to make ironclad long-term plans, and we should be much more oriented toward do the thing that's going to give you a high information signal about whether it fits you or not. So the reason I wanted to bring that back is I thought it really was an interesting quote in the context of some of the questions that you, know, you pose, which to David's point, like I, like I look back even you know at 18, how well do you know yourself? At 20, how well do you know yourself? And I mean, you talk about this idea of the limits of control and you say an enormously stupefying, complicated world is always shaping the situations you find yourself in. Not even who you are is fully up to you. Everyone goes through things that shape them in ways they wouldn't want if they had the choice. So like with that in mind and then David's question in mind, like when we start to ask these questions at such an early age, you know, like what is the difference between asking them, you know, when you're 40 something versus uh, when you're talking about your own students? Yeah, you know, um, life, life stages are, 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 are so, so real here. Um, in fact, you know, in the story of the, of, of Siddhartha, the story of the Buddha, um, his father, the king, his first response to the Buddha when he wants to, you know, renounce, um, all of his earthly possessions and his earthly position and, and go seek enlightenment, his, his father's first answer isn't, you know, you're wrong. His father's answer is, that's not, it's not for this season yet. <laughs> you should do that later. Um, there's a time for renunciation and that time is essentially like, that's, that's retirement. <laughs> and, and you should, in the meantime, you, you need to do something more worldly. Um, and the Buddha, of course, does not take that advice. Um, but, you know, so there's, so there, there's that itself too, right? Which says the like, um, I mean, what the king is offering him there is in a certain sense, a sort of a certain kind of uh, Hindu common sense, right? It says sort of there are different seasons of life and the good life actually just looks meaningfully, meaningfully different from season to season. So there are sort of great traditions in human history that have that have suggested not only is it difficult to ask these questions or different to ask these questions at different times of life, they may not just happen to have different answers to you because you think about them differently they might even like normatively or there might even just be like a different fact of the matter at different um seasons of life which is a really like intriguing idea that in my religious tradition i had never encountered before um but yeah i mean it it i mean i'm, I'm very sympathetic to the thought that like we are we ask it's crazy that we ask students to like chart their career paths when they're 18 years old that's insane um fortunately at yale we're not asking them to do that they didn't even have to declare their majors until the ends of their second years and for better and for worse um most yale student the yale students um uh, majors aren't all that predictive of what they're actually going and doing in their lives anyway um yeah <laughs> most most of my yeah college friends are doing things more related to their extracurriculars than to their um to their academic majors, but, um, you know, these, these questions do show up in different ways at different times in our lives. And I've had the privilege of being part of parts of these conversations with undergraduates, with people in the middle of their careers, with, um, with folks who are incarcerated and who are looking back at particular seasons of their lives, um, that sort of landed them where they are, have been able to sit with folks who are whose big question about a life worth living is a question about what does a good life look like in retirement? Um, and even with some folks who are 
mostly looking back on their lives and saying, um, what, what, what can I see looking back on my life that I could share with others, um, about what my, uh, what I have learned about what a good life is. I, I guess all, like, all I can really say is like it, the questions do take different kinds of import. Um, the conversation looks different. Often conversation across different life uh, stages is really, really um, potent and valuable. It's something that college campuses are sadly like nearly entirely bereft of. But I have a, I have a friend who uh, teaches a life worth living course in a secondary school environment. Um, and in his version of the course, um, he assigns students to go one of their papers. They have to have go have a conversation about, you know, visions of the good life with someone who's over the age of 60. They have, uh, usually that ends up being a grandparent and they come back with all kinds of insights and all kinds of even just like different questions that um, that folks that, that in those life stages are asking than, you know, they are at 16 or 17 or however old they are as they're taking these classes. And I, and I think what I take from that is a sort of, this is a lifelong project. We have to be really, really patient with ourselves. Um, and, and, and yet also sort of, um, persistent throughout our lives to keep taking these questions up again and again and again. Um, because hopefully we are growing in wisdom. People around us are growing in wisdom and we're gaining access to new, new ideas, new cultural spaces, new worlds, um, as we live our lives. Well, you know, there's something that you say uh, about the three aspects of a good life. You say agency, circumstance, and affect are the three basic aspects of a good life. Can you explain that to people and expand on that concept? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So we think about it, we can think about it in terms of something like, say, friendship, right? So, um, uh, you know, a friendship's going to have, uh, there are at least like three things we could say about a friendship. And we could think about it in terms of these three um these three dimensions, right? So first of all, um, a friendship is something that exists like outside myself. It's not, um, I can't just declare that I have a friendship <laughs> um, either. I, there needs to be someone on the other end, right? So it's not just an exercise of my own agency. It's not just a feeling that I have. I could feel like I'm friends with, you know, Taylor Swift or whoever, right? But if, if they don't know that we're friends, then we're not friends, right? Um, so there's a and and many good things in life um, are, are are like that. They are part of the world outside of us. Um, but we'd also say like a, a friendship um, wouldn't really be a friendship if we didn't ourselves put some energy into it. So there's also an aspect of my own agency. I have to be a friend to someone who is really my friend. Um, and so there's there are these agential sort of aspects of, of, of life. And, and a lot of, again, a lot of important aspects of a good life uh, or, or sort of components of a good life are, are in this dimension. They're what we call, they're parts of what we call like life led well. We're exercising what agency we do have, um, in ways that are, um, right and good and aligned, um, with, uh, with, with the flourishing, um, of our own lives and the flourishing of others around us. But there's also, you know, if we, you know, if we had a friendship and all right, some, this person says, yes, I, I am, I am their, their friend. Um, I'm Matt's friend and I'm saying, yeah, I'm investing in this relationship too. But somehow there was no feeling to it. It, it felt cold, right? That wouldn't, we, we could maybe like have like some sort of reciprocal duty <laughs> to one another. Um, but that's not really a friendship either, right? Um, there's a, 
there's an affective, uh, an emotional sort of feeling component um, to a friendship. Um, and, and again, similarly, there are many things in a, when it comes to a good life where we cannot just ask, you know, what does it mean for life to go well in terms of life circumstances? Or what is it to lead our lives well in terms of life's um, agential component? But we should also ask, like, what does a good life feel like? Um, what's the emotional substance um, of flourishing life? Um, and so uh, there are certain accounts, um, certain sort of radical accounts that would say, hey, only one of these really matters. You know, certain, a certain kind of understanding of the Stoics, at least, would, would suggest that the Stoics are sort of radicals of this sort. Only life led well matters to the Stoic. You shouldn't care about how you feel. You shouldn't be invested in any of life's circumstances. Um, all that matters is that you do, the, do what's right. You live according to virtue. Um, that would be a sort of vision of a good life reduced to agency alone. Um, and we can imagine sort of analogous sort of radical views. I'd say all that really matters is how you feel. Maybe happiness alone is the only thing that matters when it comes to a good life. But most, most visions, um, especially the, the ancient ones are inclined, um, most of the ancient ones are inclined to, um, to think that there's somehow it's all three of these in concert. There may be one is, is, you know, more important than the others. You know, most moral visions of a good life are going to say, push come to shove, leading your life well, how you exercise your agency. That's maybe actually the most important. But most of them, like I said, are, are going to see like actually all three of these things have to come together. And when we see things like friendship, um, where the good of these good things <laughs> seems to participate in all three of these dimensions i think we can sort of build some intuitions towards thinking oh, okay to me there's good reason to think that a good life actually uh, has all three of these components this is something i wanted to ask you i was out uh, just grabbing a uh, coffee earlier and i remember i just finished compiling the book notes and i, I like i walked with him I was like, wait a minute there's something here that wasn't mentioned at all and that's romantic love was that by design mm. Mm. oh that's so interesting well you know, I, I I do think a romantic love is sort of uh, conceivable in terms of these three terms. It's it's these three dimensions. It's gonna it's gonna participate in all three of those. Um, but you know, it, that is interesting. You know, romantic love is a relatively recent uh, human idea. Um, uh, I suppose if my wife listens to this, I should say it's really important to me. <laughs> um, but um, but it's it's a relatively recent idea, um, and. Uh, and, you know, in certain ways, it probably ref the the heightened import that we societally tend to give to romantic love. Of course, there are plenty of sort of protest voices right? that say, I don't know how, how important that actually is. Um, but, you know, broadly in culture and movies and film and novels and these sorts of things, there's a, been a lot of attention paid to romantic love for the past few hundred years, and, and especially in the West. Um I think in part our sort of fixation there maybe in part has to do with um, our fixation on the affective, emotional sort of component uh, or dimension of a good life. Um, so I think in it, it is a sort of like romantic love is a bringing together of all three of these things, but it really, in fact, you know, I mean, we're probably the the first, certainly in the West before, I don't know, 19th century you wouldn't have thought of love as even primarily having an emotional component um i mean i suppose like shakespeare's getting you there a bit earlier than that um 
but the sort of thought that like love is primarily an emotion, um, certainly in the Christian West, the thought would have been, no, no, no love is primarily like a, a disposition of, uh, it's a virtue, right? Um, it's a, it's a way that you choose to lead your life. You choose to love, um, love God, love neighbor, love oneself. Um, yeah. So maybe that's, maybe that's why it's like de-emphasized for us because we're reading these, um, older traditions, um, for whom romantic love either is like oh, nearly just like not a category for them or at any rate, um, not quite nearly as central as it may be for us. Well, let's talk about this notion of uncertainty and limitations. You say trying to understand the really big picture exhaustively is not necessary. We must acknowledge disagreement and be un- be comfortable with uncertainty. And, you know, the there's this sort of like mythical idea I think a lot of people have of the, this perfect time when they're going to do this thing that they say they want to do, whether it's like write a book or whatever it is. And I realize that they never comes for most people <laughs> and they kind right. of have this, you know, sort of just delusional reality. But the other part of this that was just got me thinking this morning because I was writing about this because I just got back from Brazil Friday night and I kept thinking, you know, I have a friend and I kept trying to convince him that, you know, he should travel a bit and get out of the United States. And he'll always joke with me. He's like, you mean we're not the center of the universe? But I'm like, no, you're not the center of the universe, you idiot. Uh, But I mean, got me thinking about the fact that like, you know, the diversity of experiences that you have actually expands the range of your potential, uh, whether those experiences are good or bad, whether they're pleasurable or annoying. Uh, But I think that there's this sort of mythical idea that somehow, and I think I have this idea at moments. It's like, oh, when I have it all together, I'll be ready to do X, Y, Z, get married, whatever, start a family. Um, So talk to me about that in the context of this whole idea of uncertainty and limitations. Well, I think it it comes in a couple different ways. So one is, you know, intellectual humility is for me a really, really important virtue. Um, And especially when we come to these sorts of tasks, I mean, we tell our students on the, I tell my students on the first day of class, like, look, the question of the good life is both inalienably your responsibility to answer right like you <laughs> only you can answer this question for yourself and you really have to do it but it's also at the same time it is above your pay grade like you are you're just never going to become an expert when it comes to the good life um and again in an academic environment that can be a sort of like a mm, sort of uncomfortable or even surprising sort of thing to hear from an instructor Right. If, if the the concept of the university for a student is sometimes a sense that like um, they're just going around sort of becoming experts in one thing after another. Right. To have an instructor say, hey, I'm going to teach you this course and I'm going to promise you from the outset you will not become an expert um, or expertise is just the wrong way to think about it. Um, so I think like, you know, we, we tell us in students, you know, that the course in certain ways is just um it's like training and preparation for choosing as amateurs because that's all we ever do. Um, and I take it that probably most of the, the, like the biggest decisions we make in our lives, we make as amateurs because they're, because the biggest decisions in our lives are just bigger than we have reason to think that we could, um, become experts in whatever it would take to, to choose as experts. Right. So I think about like, you know, my wife and I deciding to get married, we I mean, I have, I mean, like a lifelong commitment. That's <laughs> not, that's just like not a thing that like you could ever be like, yes, I have this all locked down. I've looked at this from every conceivable angle. Um, I have entirely, you know, mastered this question and I've conquered it and I have come to the inescapement that this is the right path, right? You, 
you do your best, but you also have to be sort of humble in front of a decision like that and say, boy, there, there's just so much I can't know. Uh, not just so much I don't know, so much that I can't know. Um, and I just think that it's important to keep that kind of humility, um, humility in front of us as we, as, as, as we think and choose um, not just, you know, one or another path, but even the sort of standards or the vision of, of life that we're trying to sort of, uh, uh, trying, trying, trying to live into. Mm-hmm. There's a second part of your question and I can't, I can't quite recall. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you kind of answered it, but it was more about sort of this idea of, you know, uh, like dealing with the uncertainty or, you know, people having this mythical idea that there's some sort of date in the future where they have it all together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someday in the future. Yeah. So I have so many students who like pitch me on this idea that like, I mean, especially comes vis-a-vis money yeah. sometimes, right? The sort of thought is that like, there's like an earning time of life and then there's a like giving away money time of life. Um, and I'm just always, I mean, I'm skeptical of myself when I propose to myself that kind of way of thinking about life, right? Because I kind of think like, you know, you can't, the problem is that we're we're always in formation as people. There's no like there's no way to like take time out of life, right? Students will, especially um, undergraduates, will use language like, "Oh, I took a year off." Like you didn't take a year off. I mean, you think you've taken a year off of school, right? But you you don't. You, there's no years off of life. And so, if you want to, you know, well, you know, it's for a certain season of my life, I'm just going to amass power and wealth and influence or whatever. And then at some point I'll flip a switch later in my life. I'm going to leverage all of that power and wealth and influence for the good of the world somehow. I think I said, man, that's just a, that sounds like a really dangerous plan because along the way, as you're amassing all that wealth and power and influence, you're also becoming the kind of person who is even that much more enamored by power, wealth, and influence. And by the time you get to the point where you wish your plan now is to flip the switch, you just may not be the kind of person who would flip the switch or who even could flip, uh, flip the switch. Um, And so I I think that's even true. And, you know, sort of like someday I'll do this thing, right? Well, the longer we go in not doing that thing, even if, you know, maybe we don't have such a wild sort of, you know, thing, but we just have a someday. Well, you know, like every day that we're not doing that, we may be becoming people who are less likely ever to do that. Um, and so I think there's just always, always a sense that like, um, it's like comp- compound interest almost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like our, our attention sort of compounds. Um, and the more we give our attention to something, the more our attention will then naturally rest on that thing in the future as well. So every, every day that we choose to commit ourselves to something, we are fractionally committing parts of every day after that day as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes beautiful sense. But I had to literally just wrote down a note about that. I was like, oh, that sounds like a great blog post idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I, so I, I, I think like all the more reason, right, to sort of like seize the moment, take up the day, you know, um, yeah. if you know, this, this is the day to start making that deliberate decision in whatever, whatever way it is, that intentional decision to invest ourselves in whatever it is we think matters most. Well, you know, I think that the final place I want to finish here is with this idea of mortality. You say death is an inevitable part of life. Recognizing mortality adds urgency and significance to our actions. The limited time motivates us to make the most of it. Um, and I think that everybody listening to this understands this intellectually, you know, uh, yeah. but the question is like acting on that idea 
you know, because, you know, like the, the, I always said that that whole James Dean quote of, you know, like dream as if you'll live forever, you know, and then live as you'll if you're going to die tomorrow. I was like, that's ludicrous. Nobody if, if people actually did that, nobody would do a damn thing. They would literally if, if I if I were to live that literally, I'd be like, all right, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go out and get completely wasted. I'm going to do every drug under the sun. I'm going to basically just go and like, you know, do every it's going to be the most hedonistic day of my life if I'm going to die tomorrow. So I remember revising that. I said, don't do that. I'm like, live as if you'll die a year from now. Because at least then you can do something with that time. Uh, <laughs> but I think that, that there's something to be said for that whole idea of mortality. Cause like, I think I'm only becoming aware of it as I've gotten older. Cause like, this is the year I've seen a lot of friends lose their parents for the mm. first time. Mm. Um, like people I went to high school with, people whose parents like I watched growing up and I'm like, wow, they're gone. You know, uh, and that I think just makes me more and more aware of it. You know, like I, I have a eight month old nephew and I, I started, you know, writing a life advice book for him. And I realized I was like, I can't write a children's book. So I told my sister, I'm going to write this for him and you'll give it to him when he's 18, but you're never allowed to read it. It's meant only for him. And the, I open it by saying, I don't even know if I'm still here. You know? Mm. Yeah. Our, our colleague at Yale, Martin Hagland, um, has written this book, uh, called, uh, this life in which he makes some of these arguments. Um, where he actually, he, he defines uh, something he calls secular faith. And, and he thinks that secular faith is the sort of faith that all of us, whether we're religious or not, we have. Um, we, at least we, and we demonstrate this faith every time that we choose to care about us. And care for him is a technical term. It means not just like investing ourselves in the well-being of someone or something, but Investing ourselves in in something or some someone or something that we might lose, and he thinks that that possibility of loss is actually part of what it means to care. And I think that's I find something really persuasive and really beautiful about that. Um, this way of reading that possibility of loss is actually part and parcel of what it means to be invested in in the world. Um, and so every time we take up a relationship, we take up a project, we invest ourselves and our lives in someone or something outside of ourselves, death, the inevitability of death means we are taking, we are investing, we're taking a risk. We are opening ourselves up to a certain sort of vulnerability. And that's, I'm persuaded by Hagland that that's that may that may at some level be sort of oh man there's something natural within us that wants to like strive against that or like wish that were not so right we we sort of rage against our mortality even as we know that is it is inevitable but there's something right i think in his account his account that says that actually the finitude of all that's what we're talking about right uh, our lives are not infinite. The things that we care about, the people that we care about, whatever we invest ourselves in, these things too are not infinite. The finitude of all of these good things are themselves, that finitude is part of the dynamic of what it feels like to be human and to care and to be invested in someone or something. And that's, I think once we can start to see it that way, it doesn't, I feel like it's able to tell the truth about the world, right? We're able to tell the truth, which is that the truth is it's pain. Loss is painful. 
because something when when we experience a, a loss, when we experience a death of of a friend or a family member, there's real loss. There's no like, oh man, if you could see it th- from this other this certain perspective, then it wouldn't even look like loss or feel like loss. At least for me, it feels like no, no, no. There's something real. There's real loss there. And at the same time, you know, when we're in that experience of in that place of mourning, we're in that place of 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 lament and sorrow. You know, mourning is what love feels like when it loses its object. Right? When we and so when we feel the pain of that sorrow of loss, what we're feeling is evidence of the love that we and in fact the love that we have right the love has outlasted its object and that's not there's part of that that's tragedy but there's a part of that that is beauty that's that's even success that is itself the substance of the good life to to have loved you know in that way where the love even outlasts outlives its object and I, I I share with your sort of thought, right? We we want our, we hope someday, um, whether it's our children or our friends or young people that we've cared for, will mourn our loss, that uh, we will be loved even beyond our own lives uh, here. Um, and we begin to think about that aspect. Again, it doesn't erase what's painful, but I think it adds to it um, this sense of what is what is beautiful and what we what we would not want to know about loss. Wow. Um, well, I have one a final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable mm-hmm. creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I guess I when I think of what makes someone or something unmistakable, I think of what sort of makes us us, our our identity, our authenticity. And at the end of the day, I think what most makes us us is not something necessarily that resides inside of us, uh, but is it, it is at least as much uh, who we are loved by, um, who cares for us. Um, are we beloved by our family, by our friends, by our community? Are we beloved by God? Who are those people who it's those who who love us in the sense that like they were joyfully anticipating our arrival before they had even met us. I think these are some of the most fundamental things that um, make us make us who we are and mark us takeably as us. Beautiful. Um, well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom, story, and insights. Uh, this has been just an absolutely breathtaking conversation. And uh, like I, I told you at the beginning, like I felt like this was one of those books that really like you would return to over and over again. So um, for everybody listening, can you tell them uh, where they can find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Sure. Um, I think the uh, the best place uh, for the book is lifeworthlivingbook.com. Find not only your way to the book, but also um, to like a discussion guide. If you want to take up the book conversation in conversation with others, we've found over the years, the true joy here in, in all of this is not just asking these questions ourselves, but dialoguing um, with other people, being in conversation with other people who maybe uh, see things quite differently. So 
uh, check that out, lifewithlivingbook.com. And uh, I hope you have a great conversation. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.